it's in the long term when you compare it to the potential of having a guardianship and a conservatorship proceeding, this is again, like I said before, kind of the safest way to ensure that we've got those control, um, those controls on all of your assets and making sure that your person is going to be taken care of and doing it in a cost-effective manner. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson and per usual, joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing very well. Good. We're, we're making it. We're living. surviving. We're surviving. We're living life. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think the, uh, the theme of 2020 is definitely survived. Mm-hmm. Just every month. Every month is an accomplishment. It is. That, and that's it. That's all you can do is just keep one foot in front of the other and keep moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I saw the best um, pumpkin carving the other day. Um, someone had shared it on social media. And I'm like, this is the perfect 2020 pumpkin where somebody carved like four little mini pumpkins and then put Zoom on the bottom. And it was like the perfect <laughs> little Zoom meeting. Like that definitely sums up 2020 in a pumpkin. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that exceeded my pumpkin carving capacity by about (laughs) 2,000%. Well, we thought, so when we were at the pumpkin patch this last weekend and, Mm -hmm. you know, they get all the crazy different types of pumpkins this year, like the ones with all the bumps that just look like disease infected. Yeah. Um, those just freaked me out. We didn't end up getting one, but we thought it would be really funny where, you know, we could have a disease kind of infected pumpkin and which is, you know, just a little bit pays tribute to just kind of the craziness of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then you could have another pumpkin, um, that looks clean and has a mask on. So my husband's going to try and do a pumpkin with a mask on. Um, but yeah, so we thought, you know, it's got a little bit of everything going on and you could, you know, pay tribute to the craziness of 2020 with your pumpkin somehow. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> That'll be good. Yeah, I, I, I can't do almost anything carving a pumpkin. I can, I can clean it out. I, I've got that, but uh, I, I can cut the hole on the top. Uh-huh. <laughs> not in a perfect circle though so but i can get the i can get the the line to connect so uh-huh. that it comes off and then after that it's uh really uneven circles and triangles yes <laughs> that's it yeah we um i saw a video where if you get the bigger pumpkin then you could just use like a jigsaw on it, which I'm like, that's actually a really smart Mm. idea. My problem is we just got all the small pumpkins this year. So I'm like, well, I don't really want to lose a finger trying to carve my pumpkin. So probably not going to go with that. I have to buy, you know, the little cheap $2 kit and go at it for about an hour. Yeah. Like you said, you have to get a little asymmetrical Mm -hmm. shapes on there. The little, it's not even like a blade. It's just like a, a it's like a rusty piece of wire yes. that they've <laughs> stuck into a piece of plastic that's going to come off. They're going to mm-hmm. separate at some point during the process. Yep. <laughs> you got to get your tetanus shot up to date before you do it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. We're, I don't know when we're going to do it. We haven't bought a pumpkin yet, so we'll see. Obviously for anybody listening, we're recording this before Halloween. So <laughs> if, yeah, should you be listening afterwards? <laughs> That's what's happening in the world. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking that we could chat about incapacity tonight being the lack of capacity. Capacity meaning uh, mental capacity uh, mm-hmm. due to some physical or mental ailment of any variety. And so I thought maybe we could talk about how we tend to address incapacity kind of in our planning, why the issues that, that arise in that kind of planning uh, to talk about powers of attorney, because that's a very popular way to try to deal with this issue, uh, to talk a little bit about the court proceedings that can come into play when somebody is incapacitated and perhaps didn't do the planning they could have, and then maybe talk about trusts and how we use trusts to address incapacity. I like that. It's an important right. issue to talk about. Totally. The, the issue of incapacity really arises in two different arenas. Uh, first, it's, a, it's really a healthcare issue. And so you're thinking about what happens, not necessarily when somebody has a healthcare problem, because um, you can have a healthcare problem and you don't need to really do incapacity planning, but more from the perspective of you have a healthcare problem and you're in some sort of condition where you actually are incapable of making decisions about yourself. So you're not capable of consulting with the medical professionals. You're certainly not capable of really giving them consent for treatment or procedures. And so you need somebody to step into your shoes, so to speak, and make decisions for you. And this can, this can be for a number of reasons. So let me just kind of flesh that out just a little bit. So first of all, uh, from a legal perspective, this would apply if you are not a legal adult. And states vary, uh, but the age for being an adult tends to be either 18, which is what it is in our state, Arizona. Some states it's 21, but uh, I'd say overall, states tend to pick 18. It's a pretty pretty common one. So If you're under the age of 18, for example, in the state of Arizona, you're deemed, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much of a genius you are, no matter how much of a child prodigy you happen to be, you are deemed to be incapacitated and incapable of making healthcare decisions. Uh, Although usually it's your, you know, your input, so long as you're able to give it, is taken into consideration. Then uh, if you're over the age of 18, you could have some issue that prevents you from making these decisions for yourself. So it could be a physical issue. It could be a mental issue. It could be a combination of the two, of course. And so you got to be thinking about how, how do we handle that scenario? Because we obviously want a person to be able to step in for you. And if we're being choosy, then it's going to be the person that you want, not just some person that somebody else chooses for you. It's going to be your chosen surrogate, so to speak. Then, so that's kind of the healthcare sphere. Then you got to be thinking about finances in a very broad sense, in the sense of who would be able to manage your assets being any type of property that you can imagine that you would own, who could manage those assets just exactly the way that you are able to manage them 
if you had an ailment that prevented you from having the legal capacity to manage that asset. And that may be a slightly different legal test to figure that out. But basically what it means is you don't have sufficient mental capacity, again, because of a mental ailment or a physical ailment or both to enter into contracts or to make a gift to formulate sufficient intent to do those two things in the eyes of the law. And when that occurs, generally speaking, you need somebody to stand into in your shoes to make those financial decisions for you. So I think, and I, I'm hopefully I'm describing that uh, clearly enough, but just to put a, a point of emphasis on it, when I say financial decisions, I mean any decision related to your assets, not just who deposits checks and draws checks on your checking account. Okay. Much broader than that. It's who actually manages all of your things, just like you manage all of your things that you own now, but at some point when you're unable to do it yourself. So that's, that's the setup. That's the scenario that we're trying to plan for because we're greedy and we always want our clients to have control in every one of these scenarios. And so although you can luck into having control, usually you have to plan for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we talk about incapacity, you know, it's, it's one thing just like in the estate planning context with death, no one likes to talk about it. Um, death, statistically speaking, is 100% going to happen, unlike incapacity. Um, but with incapacity, it's, it's still fairly common. You know, when you think about the context of just Alzheimer's and dementia and the percent of, you know, elderly individuals who, you know, may um, have Alzheimer's or dementia later on in life. I mean, that could be a scenario where at some point you're no, no longer able to make decisions on your behalf, to handle your own finances, like you were saying. We always use the example for our clients that, you know, today, you could be young and healthy, walk out of our office after seeing us, and we just did a great job. And unfortunately, a bus just hit you right across the street. And that's in you're put into a coma. Or, you know, in today's world in the pandemic with COVID, we see so many people who've gone on to the ventilators. And at that point, they are no longer able to speak for themselves. They're in a medically induced coma. They need someone who can make decisions on their behalf. They need someone who can manage all their assets. That's what incapacity is. And so it's so important that, you know, during your lifetime, things are going to be taken care of. So the way to do that is through powers of attorney. And there's two types of powers of attorney that we really, um, we always make sure that all of our clients have, um, kind of addresses those two spheres, like you were saying, Brent, which is the healthcare side and then the financial side. So first looking at healthcare powers of attorney, that's one document where in that document, you list out who you want to make healthcare decisions for you. And again, this is when you are unable to do so. So during your life, while you can, absolutely, you can tell your doctor is exactly what you want, depending on you know, whatever the circumstances are. But when you're unable to do so, that's when your agent is going to be able to step in into your shoes and make the decisions for you. And um, you'll not only appoint an agent in your healthcare power of attorney, but you'll appoint a successor agent. You'll appoint even a second successor agent just in case that so you have a list of people who you trust, who you know that those people know your, your wishes and your desires. Um, 
and those are the people who can make the decisions on your behalf. Uh, you and I also kind of like to combine a living will with a healthcare power of attorney. And with that, we kind of have it as like the instruction manual in a way which kind of lists out a little bit more um, intimate details. Do I want to be um, given artificial, artificially administered fluids? Do I want to be given um, CPR, you know, resuscitation, all of that kind of stuff. And so that kind of helps your agents then if you're ever in that position, your agents know your wishes, they know your desires so that they don't have to do any guesswork basically. It's all laid out for them. And so that's a really important document Basically, anyone who's over the age of 18 years old should have that document done because, again, you just never know what life's going to throw at you. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point because you can imagine, uh, say, kids for whom the parents have always had the ability to make decisions, healthcare decisions, and then the kid leaves for college, for example, and now that's gone. And so once, once that child turns 18 in the state of Arizona – Unless the child signs a healthcare power of attorney, the parent doesn't necessarily have the right to step in and make decisions for them. There's a, there's a second piece to this that we also try to address, which is who has the right under federal and state law to access healthcare information of the person who signed the healthcare power of attorney. So again, you think of like your 18-year-old child who goes to college, they become ill, you, the parent, want to call up their doctor to talk to the doctor about, you know, what's going on. You don't have the right. Under HIPAA and most state laws uh, that implement HIPAA, you're not permitted to gain access to your child's healthcare information just because you're the parent once they are an adult. And so another important component to the healthcare power of attorney, sometimes it's in the document, like we put it in the document. Sometimes you have a separate HIPAA release, uh, but an important component of it is to have this HIPAA release so that your agent whom you have named will also be able to talk to your healthcare, uh, your healthcare professionals. Uh, so they can just get information. doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make any decisions, but just to get information about what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. I think it just really highlights, you know, when you have someone younger, say the 18 year old who just left home, they're in college now, um, we also see a, this a lot with just younger couples who may not be married yet. You know, if you're not married, you're in a long-term relationship with your partner. If you don't have a healthcare power of attorney and say, maybe your parents don't necessarily agree with your life partner, then if there's no power of attorney, you're going to have a conflict in the future on two people who are going to battle and, you know, try and become, um, the person who gets to make those decisions. So it's so important for you just to be able to list out who you want to be, uh, those people in the order of priority. Now, in terms of the financial side, so you have a financial power of attorney. It's also known as a general durable power of attorney, a durable power of attorney. There's a whole bunch of names for it, but basically it's your financial power of attorney. And that document is basically the same as the healthcare side, but just for finances. You're going to list out your agent, successor agents as well, on who gets to manage your finances, who gets to make all of those decisions on just managing all of your assets um, when you're unable to do so. And in our documents, we like to list out long, long laundry lists of basically every type of asset that we can possibly think of. Um, to allow your agent to be able to manage and control just because we don't ever want a situation where there's this, you know, 
piece of property or whatever it may be, and your agent doesn't have the power to deal with it. And so we're going to talk about any business interests that you have. If you own a corporation, an LLC, things like that. Real estate, we're going to talk about that. Um, of course, bank accounts, really, like I said, any type of property, we're going to list in that document. So again, the people who you want can be the ones who uh, manage that. And this list can be entirely different from your healthcare. And we see that all the time with our finance or with, with our clients, where some of our clients say, well, you know, our daughter is a little bit more warming and, you know, a little bit more emotional. She'd be good on the healthcare side. Um, but our other daughter, she's really good with finances. So we're going to want her as the agent on the other one. And so you can completely change it up. Um, and again, it's just to make sure that whoever you want in charge is going to be your agent. We also see a lot um, with corporate fiduciaries. Sometimes um, clients don't want any of their children or any of their family members or friends on their documents. And so they might have a bank step in as uh, a financial, as, as an agent on a financial power of attorney um, because they think that, you know, maybe the corporate fiduciary is going to be the best person to manage. So it's really up to the client. And again, it's just so important to make sure that they have the control to direct who they want to be able to manage the property for them. Yeah. So can you explain then what does it mean for the power of attorney to be durable? Yeah. So when it's durable, um, that is when it's effective immediately. And it's um, basically there's, there's no, uh, there doesn't have to have a lapse of time. It's going to be basically effective until the individual revokes it or the, the individual passes away. Right. Yeah. It's not affected by time. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I, if I sign my power of attorney to today uh, and I name you as my agent and then 10 years passes and now all of a sudden I need you to step in for me, the lapse of time doesn't affect the, the efficacy of that document. And mm -hmm. then if I become incapacitated, so I've created, I've named you as my agent, I become incapacitated. And now you have to step into my shoes. If it's a durable power of attorney, it means you're able to step into my shoes and do things for me, even though I can't do it for myself. And it plays off of, all right, it's going to be a really nerdy thing. So <laughs> yeah, you or anybody else could tune out for about two minutes here. But <laughs> it plays off of the fact that powers of attorney come out of the law of agency. And under the, the historical law of agency, the person who's choosing the agent known as the principal, so me in my example, choosing you as my agent, could only allow the agent to do things that, I, that the principal is able to do. So if right now I could sign a check, I could make you my agent and say you can sign the check for me. But under the historical law of agency, if I was incapable of doing that act, my agent would be incapable of doing that act because you sort of are, you're a surrogate. You step into my shoes to the extent that I've granted you the authority to do so, again, historically. So uh, the durable power of attorney laws say we're not using that historical agency principle. Instead, the lapse of time, i.e. The, the duration between when I sign the document or when I appoint you my agent and you start to act, that doesn't make it ineffective. And the fact that I become incapacitated and no longer can do the act myself does not make my appointment of you ineffective. It doesn't nullify your authority to act. So there's a weird, and I, this is somewhat 
a, a teaser because we're going to talk about trust and it plays off of something that you were mentioning, Rachel, about the laundry list of things that are in, in our documents. And it's, it's that powers of attorney come out of a sort of different branch of the law historically. And at least in this, in our state, there is, there is a statute that tells you if you do these things, your power of attorney is a valid power of attorney, but it does not say exactly what the powers of the agent are because it's just this appointment and it's whatever the principal decides the agent is going to do because historically that was the way the principal agent relationship worked. And so therefore, if you don't say it in the document, the agent doesn't have the authority to do it. And sometimes you might use a document that says, I give my agent the authority to do anything. Anything I could do, my agent can do. That's a very broad grant of authority for an agent under a power of attorney. That does not always work because on the other end of this transaction is a third party. So there's you, the principal, there's your agent that you've said, you get to act for me, agent. And then there's a third party that the agent is going to be going to, and it ain't going to be you, and it ain't going to be the agent. And neither of you control this third party. And the third party is not required to follow along with your durable power of attorney if they don't want to do so. So the moral is you, usually you want to be pretty specific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good point. And especially, you know, when you think we're dealing with finances and assets right now, that third party could be a financial institution. Uh, more likely than not, it could be, um, could just be a third party, like an independent buyer or seller, who knows. Um, but we see typically a lot of financial institutions, you know, trying to deal with bank accounts, things like that. Financial institutions tons of regulations. They have a lot of internal policies. They're very specific on what kind of documents they want to see if they're going to approve to do a transaction with. And if that one transaction is not listed in there, like you said, they may not want to do business with that agent at all. Yep. That's exactly right. And somebody might be thinking, why not just write better documents and then you won't have this problem. And I wish, I wish <laughs> yeah. that that were the solution, but that's actually not the solution. Uh, the solution is find a bank to pick on banks, you know, find a bank that will accept your document. Uh, but sometimes they don't. And so there, you, there are two scenarios that arise where sometimes the power of attorney uh, process that we've been describing does not happen. So first of all, you don't name somebody in a healthcare power of attorney, or you name someone, but they are not able to act as your agent. Okay. So either you don't do the document or you do the document, but it doesn't work for some reason, oftentimes because it's something out of your control, but it could also be an invalidly signed document too. So, or number two, in the financial scenario, uh, you don't do a document at all. So that's a problem. You do a document, but the agent is unable to act for some reason, or Finally, the third party will not accept the document. And in any of those scenarios, and I may be forgetting some other scenario that could become problematic, but in any of those scenarios that I described, you're going to be in a difficult situation. Uh, because at that point, as what we're talking about, you, the person who would have signed the document, are now incapacitated, meaning you are not able to sign a new document and rectify the situation. And in most states, and I'll speak specifically about Arizona because that's the one where 
I know what's going on. Uh, but in most states, there's a, there are court procedures to appoint someone to stand in your shoes. It's just that they're not doing it because you told them to do it. They're doing it because the court said they can do it. And that person is usually called a guardian. And depending on the state that you're in, it's it's either a guardian for healthcare decisions, just plain old guardian is for healthcare decisions or a guardian of the person, sometimes it's called. And then you need someone for financial decisions, just like with the powers of attorney. And in some states, that's called a conservator. And in other states, they call it a guardian of the estate. But guardian of the person and just plain old guardian for healthcare decisions, that's sort of one and the same. Guardian of the estate and conservator, that's sort of one and the same. One and the same. Every state uh, does things a little bit differently, and they may have slightly different names or terms for these positions. But in Arizona, it's a guardian for healthcare and conservator for financial decisions. It is not impossible, but it is not necessarily easy to get a guardian or a conservator appointed for you. And so if someone needs to get a guardian appointed for you. So now you're incapacitated. You can't do this for yourself. So somebody's going to have to act on your behalf. The statute usually says there's a list of people who have some sort of connection to you. And the statute says somebody among that list of people can what's called petition the court, meaning file documents with the court, asking the court to appoint a guardian for you. And when that's done, the court will appoint you your own lawyer, unless you already have one. Usually the person who files the petition has their own lawyer, unless they're doing this on their own. The court will then appoint an uh, investigator. In Arizona, it's an investigator. Some states, they appoint what's called the guardian ad litem, who sort of represents your interests in court. They're not your lawyer, but they, they advise the court about your interests. And then there's a hearing. And usually it's a public proceeding. And you and all of these people and anybody in your family uh, who's close to you, and usually there's a close enough relationship where those family members say get notice of the hearing, uh, can show up and have a hearing about how you're not capable of making decisions about your well-being. And that may not be a very pleasant proceeding. You may understand what's going on and not like that. And in the conservator context, the proceeding is similar and the process is similar to getting there, but the, the proceeding and the hearing is about how you're incapable of making uh, decisions about your finances. And in some cases that absent the appointment of a conservator, your assets are likely to be wasted. And it does not have to be some sort of significant physical or mental incapacity issue. It could e even be say substance abuse. So if you have a substance abuse issue, a conservator is, is a position that can be appointed for you. Uh, if, again, the substance abuse indicates that you're not able to manage your finances or your assets would be wasted without the appointment of a conservator, uh, at least that's the way the Arizona statute kind of describes it. And so it's a, these are very broad proceedings, but the, old, the, the thing that happens at the end is somebody is, is appointed legally to hold all of your rights to make these decisions, including sometimes your right to vote, usually your right to say own guns, if that's a thing that you care about, uh, and really your constitutional rights, a lot of your constitutional liberty type rights to make your own decisions and manage your own affairs are stripped from you uh, during the proceedings. So these are important proceedings. That's not something to be done lightly, and it's not a decision to be made lightly. In 
every state that I'm aware of, and certainly in the state of Arizona, before all, any of this happens, you can choose whom you would want the court to appoint as your guardian or conservator. So we typically do that in the uh, healthcare power of attorney and in the financial power of attorney, because that's the way you can do it for yourself. If you have minor incapacitated children you can or a spouse, you can name whom you would want to be appointed for those folks. In the case of your minor kids, say if your spouse couldn't be the conservator or sorry, the, the child's other parent couldn't be the conservator, you can name whom you would want to be appointed for them as guardian and conservator as well. So it's really important for even younger couples who have young children or really any couple that has young children to understand that, yes, you need to be thinking about yourself and your own incapacity. But then if you're incapacitated, it means you're not making decisions for your minor child or your incapacitated child. So now you got to take the second step and try and figure out who would I want to make those decisions for them. And in that case, you're, you're making a list of whom you would want to name as the guardian or conservator in a court proceeding for, for those kids. So that's a, it's a, it's a sometimes challenging process and it's a process really that if you can, you want to avoid it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, it's, uh, it's good to point out that, you know, if you go through one of these proceedings, a guardianship proceeding or a conservatorship proceeding, and say you have one or both that is appointed for you, that person is going to be serving until you are determined to be no longer incapacitated or until you pass away. So this is not just a, oh, we're going to go through this, you know, conservatorship proceeding just so we could, you know, do this deal for a month. No, this is going to be a lifetime appointment. Um, so it's, it's like you said, it's not something to be taken lightly. I know a lot of people probably heard about Britney Spears. We've mentioned this before on the podcast and free Britney. Oh yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> Got a shout out to my girl, Britney, but I mean, that's, that's a really, I mean, that that's a key case right there that really highlights, I mean, someone already who's in the public, but now intimate details are being shared to the world about whether Britney can manage her own assets. And it just, it goes to show that, you know, this, you know, people can learn about this. It's like you said, it's if you're there and you're in the proceeding and say, you know, you can understand what's going on. It might, it's not the most pleasant hearing to be there. And so it's, it's definitely something that people really want to think about. And this is why, again, we stress on why we need to do incapacity planning within a state plan. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. The Britney Spears example that as, as fun as it is to joke about sometimes, uh, it, it, it is a serious situation and it's very illustrative of how these proceedings can play out where someone can be in many ways in their life, a functioning adult, and yet the legal standard may still support the appointment of a conservator. And once one is appointed, it can be a long-term appointment and difficult to prove that you don't need that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you and I have talked about before how, you know, with, with estate planning, we talk about how it's, you know, it's, it's about making sure your, your family's taken care of that, you know, they don't have to have to go through a bunch of hurdles. And, but at the end of the day, we say, you know, we joke around, well, you're dead. So oh, it doesn't matter with incapacity planning with your powers of attorney, you're still alive. You can completely come back. You know, if, if, if for example, you're, 
in the coma because unfortunately that bus hits you like we were talking about. And then say you wake up from the coma and you know, someone's been managing your assets. Maybe they didn't do it the way you wanted. You had all these businesses. Maybe your businesses have been sold now. Who knows? And so it's, it's something that, you know, you, you are alive for. So you really want to make sure that there's still control over all of that. In Arizona, your guardian has the authority to divorce your spouse, by the way. I think that's uh, oh. very curious, very curious little twist in the law. <laughs> they have a, a lot of powers, a lot of powers. So let me, let me throw one scenario at you that I hear from other advisors from time to time. Uh, and they will say, all right, let, let me just, this is usually financial advisors. And I want to make it really clear. I'm talking about financial advisors that are not as good as some of the guests that we've had on <laughs> yes. this podcast. Okay. So just make that really clear. Or maybe not as conscientious of the issues as some of the guests that we've had on this podcast. So they'll say, uh, well, I, my clients don't need trust because we just do joint accounts or beneficiary designations and it's all taken care of and, or, or beneficiary deeds, which is a deed that says when I die, I give my property to so my real estate to so-and-so. Therefore, there's no probate because everything's got a beneficiary designation or beneficiary deed and it will just pass to the beneficiaries based on those documents. Therefore, no need to do a uh, trust, no need for additional estate planning. What no. say you, Rachel? I say no, 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 no. And then I off of my hair. Uh, oh goodness, yeah, we hear this all the time. And it's if sure if you've got joint accounts and you've got POD designations and you got beneficiary deeds. Okay, maybe you can avoid a probate if you got and you checked off every single asset that you've got but you didn't address the incapacity part of it. And that's just what we stress so much about. So that's why you need powers of attorney and not just powers of attorney, right? Those, those are great documents, right? But we want to really beef it up because we are so worried about this control aspect, right? So that's why we really advocate for a trust. And we think that a trust with the powers of attorney, that's really the safest way that we can go to make sure we've got this um, control factor kind of covered. So how the trust plays into it, so if you have a revocable living trust, so this is a trust created during your lifetime, um, let's just say you've created the trust and you are the trustee. So you're the settlor, you're the trustee of the trust. Let me also say we put all your assets into the trust. We did it perfectly. We funded it. Your house is in the trust. So everything's in the name as you as trustee of your trust. Then if you are unable to act for whatever reason, for incapacity, incapacity let's just say, then your trustee, your successor trustee, that is the next person who's gonna automatically step into your shoes and be able to handle all of those assets for you. It's quick, there's, there's no really steps that need to be done. They can immediately jump into your shoes. So if things are, um, you've got uh, transactions, at timers of the essence, this is a great way to make sure that someone's always gonna be there. Um, and we've noticed in our experience that financial institutions prefer to work with trustees over agents on a power of attorney. If you've got, let's just say a house that we're going to be selling and you've got an agent on a power of attorney and you've got a trustee of a trust, we've seen it more often than not that those institutions prefer to deal with the trustee. They just feel like it's more secure, um, that this is a, a fiduciary position that, you know, they could really rely on. That's what they're going to want. And like we talked about earlier, you're kind of just in, in 
in the discretion of the finance, the third party, right? Whatever this may be, whether it's the financial institution or not, they could decide whether or not they want to go off of that power of attorney or not. And if they don't want to, you know, go off with that document, then you need something else. And that's how we have the trust there. It's great for incapacity planning. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's not just financial institutions to sort of move them off the burner here for <laughs> a second. Uh, it also is title companies because title companies have a very difficult time with powers of attorney that are not express about the ability to do the deal related to that very specific piece of real estate. And so that issue doesn't arise with trusts. Uh, title companies are much more comfortable with trusts than they are with powers of attorney. And almost to the extent, at least from what I have observed, almost to the extent that they will not accept powers of attorney unless the power of attorney literally identifies the property almost by its exact legal description and says very expressly that the agent is able to do the specific deal that they're trying to do. And since a lot of real estate transactions are not cash transactions, meaning there's financing involved, uh, you almost always have a title company involved because the title companies, for the most part, are insuring the title for the buyer because it's the lender's requirement that there be title title insurance because uh, the lender doesn't want any sort of cloud on the title should the lender need to foreclose on the property. So they require title insurance. So it's a real big issue for real estate. It's a really big issue for financial accounts as you're describing where these were powers of attorney as beautifully as they're drafted uh, may not work where a properly done trust would work just fine in the same scenario. I theorize, I have to you know, kind of couch it that way because I can't say that I know exactly uh, what the legal reasoning of these third parties is uh, because they have never explained it to me with full satisfaction. But I believe that that the reason there is a difference, the reason that say banks prefer trusts to powers of attorney gets back to what I was describing very boringly previously about the historical law of agency and the fact that powers of attorney come out of this historical law of agency and with powers of attorney, if you do not say it specifically, then your agent doesn't have the power to do it. Sometimes, again, the power of attorney will have a very general statement. You know, the agent can do anything that I can do. That might sound comforting, but in again, in my experience, financial institutions have a hard time going along with that. Uh, whereas with trusts, in a lot of states, not every state, there is a fairly robust statute that covers trusts and covers what trustees have the authority to do. And the trust document has to uh, override that provision in order for that provision to not apply. And so usually, even if the trust document doesn't say that the trustee has this specific authority, if it's in the statute, it's still covered because the statute lists out all these different, and the statute is like this huge laundry list. It looks like our power of attorney documents, right? And that makes a big difference for trusts. Okay. So let me give you just a little bit of anecdotal support for that statement. In our prior firm, part of my job was to advise the lawyers who were representing the banks in lending transactions that had trusts or powers of attorney involved in the transaction, okay? And I can tell you from my experience 
when either the trust statute or the trust document spoke to the type of transaction that was happening, everybody was happy. And when the power of attorney was even a little bit vague, nobody was happy. The trust document and the trust statute could be a little bit vague, but everybody was happy. And so that was always my observation. And again, my theory was always that it was because of this difference in where these two different instruments are coming from historically and legally. And whether that should make a difference, you know, that's probably a, a debate to have another day. But I, it, it, in my experience, that's the difference. Yeah. And it all goes back to what you said earlier, which is if the powers of attorney fail, let's say we didn't have the trust, at that point, you're stuck with having to go with a guardianship and a conservatorship proceeding. And, and I think we've, we could talk all day about guardianship and conservatorship proceedings, but I think it's also important to note you know, in, in addition to just, we talk about how heavy the proceeding is, how this isn't something to be taken lightly. Um, it's also very costly because, it, because the appointment can be such, can be, can be very long-term um, and you have to be constantly updating the court about how the incapacitated person is doing, whether you're a guardian or a conservator. I mean, we've seen guardianship and conservatorship proceedings cost upward of $10,000. And, you know, when we have some prospective clients say, oh, I don't need the trust, right? I don't need the trust. Eh, I don't need to do all that work with all that extra money. <laughs> it's in the long term, when you compare it to the potential of having a guardianship and a conservatorship proceeding, this is, again, like I said before, kind of the safest way to ensure that we've got those control, um, those controls on all of your assets and making sure that your person is going to be taken care of and doing it in a cost-effective manner. Yep, that's that's the name of the game. Control and efficiency. Yes, I like that. That's that's what we're trying to do most of the time. I, I liked that you you mentioned earlier about, you know, worrying about this incapacity issue for clients and that that's it exactly like I just I spend a lot of time worrying about this issue and how we're going to address it and make sure that it's adequately addressed for clients and I don't know that clients always perceive the issue or perceive the risk of it, uh, but it's, I suppose it's my job to worry for them. So then hopefully they don't have to <laughs> worry about it in the future. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, any uh, parting thoughts? No, I think we've ended it on a good note there. Good. Well, thanks again, as usual. Yeah. Thank you for having me. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.